Welcome to the Pioneering Ideas Podcast, brought to you by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. On this podcast, we feature conversations that explore cutting-edge ideas with the potential to build a culture of health. In a culture of health, everyone in our diverse society can live healthier lives, now and for generations to come. Find us on iTunes or SoundCloud, and join the conversation on Twitter at hashtag RWJFpodcast. I'm your host, Lori Malliker, a director at the Foundation. This morning I did something I've been trying to do every day for the past year. I practiced being bored. That's right, you heard me. I actually practiced being bored. During the final 10 minutes of my train commute, I closed my laptop, put away my phone, and stared out the window. I was following advice that Sendel Malinathan shared on this very podcast. If you're a regular listener, you may recall the conversation I had with Sendel. He's the economist who co-authored the book Scarcity. If you're new to the podcast, you should check out our conversation on Episode 7. Sendel made the observation that in today's wired world, we are never bored. In fact, he suggested that we are out of the habit of being bored, so it's really hard for us. This makes it harder to stare out the window of a train and simply observe that the leaves are changing colors. Now, I'll admit that this observation made me want to take out my phone and start planning a weekend trip to Boston to go apple picking, but I resisted because I am practicing being bored. And as Sindel suggested, when you practice, it gets easier. So why? To what end? That's an answer I'm exploring through practice. An answer WNYC encouraged us all to explore in their bored and brilliant experiment earlier this year. I can't tell you what you'll find if you join me, what those moments might untangle in an overscheduled life. But I can tell you that I observed beauty during my practice this morning on the train, and I think it's worth the price of the four emails I didn't read. Our guest on today's episode also wants us to practice using our brains in a different way. Amit Sood is a professor of medicine at the Mayo Clinic College of Medicine. Amit believes we can build our ability to experience awareness and gratitude just like we build our endurance when we exercise, and that simple techniques can help us lead a stress-free life. To get a sense of what I'm talking about, think about how different your morning would be if instead of panicking about your day or running through a list of to-dos, you took a moment to reflect on the things you're grateful for. You took time to notice the sights, sounds, and smells around you. What if you could store up these experiences and replay them later in the day to clear your mind when you felt tense or anxious? Like me, you may have heard a lot about mindfulness lately. The definition, application, and expected outcomes vary. But it's clear that there is something here, and there's a mounting evidence base to support it. On today's Pioneering Ideas podcast, we'll explore the role of mindfulness in health and well-being and discover how deep, sustained attention can build resilience in people and in entire communities. My colleague Mike Painter saw Amit present a few years ago at the Mayo Clinic Transform Conference and was intrigued. Mike recently had the chance to sit down with Amit. Let's listen to their conversation. So we're talking about all kinds of tools and techniques to train our brains and manage stress. And some might be skeptical when they first hear of your approach, Dr. Sood, and the idea that things like mindfulness techniques are a legitimate treatment for stress, especially the kinds of stress that impact the most vulnerable. But your approach, this approach, integrates philosophy and spirituality and is deeply rooted in psychology and neuroscience. 
So today we're going to talk about how mindfulness and resiliency can contribute to happiness and to well-being, and ultimately to individual, family, community, cohesion, which are all, of course, major components of building a culture of health. I mean, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. From your description, Mike, sounds like you're talking to a guy with attention deficit. You know, he doesn't know what he's doing. But behind this, there's, as you have mentioned, there's a theme that is how can we harness, how can we get more mileage out of our, of our brain? If you believe in physical exercise, strengthening your biceps and your heart muscle, if you believe that breathing well can help your lungs, then you can train your brain too. So we're throwing around terms like mindfulness techniques and tools. Would you describe your approach as a series of mindfulness tools or is it something else? The way I see this is if I capture things in a term which not everybody understands, then it tends to get bounced around in different ways. So the way I, I see this is the first component of this is awareness, where you become aware of how your brain and mind work. The first thing you do when you get a complicated tool is to look at the instruction manual. So we've really developed a short instruction manual of human brain based on neuroscience, cutting-edge neuroscience, some really groundbreaking insights in neuroscience. And people have tremendous aha moments when they get to know about it. So that is the first component, awareness. And I personally believe that every child, every grown-up, should know how their brain operates. Just as you want to know how a piano works before playing piano, at least how the keys move and how a car's steering wheel works. So awareness. The second element is intentionality or attention. So we help people, based on that awareness, develop intentionality in where they are deploying their attention. Because you have a choice. But our attention is not in our control innately. Our attention is has negativity bias we discount the good we inflate the bad so we try to help with that intentionality and then the third component is training your interpretations how you're processing information how you're thinking and that entails bringing in timeless wisdom deeper perspective of gratitude compassion acceptance higher meaning and forgiveness into your thinking so we integrate all these three together the program we teach is called the smart program or stress management and resiliency training program so in that term we have got this entire work wonderful so as a physician you've devoted most of your entire career to teaching people how to sort of retrain their brains and manage stress. Why is that so important? Why did you do that? Gosh, you know, uh, the mind and brain are the ultimate experiencer. Right now, my big toe is not talking to your big toe. It's my mind and brain talking to your mind and brain. And you, our entire life is governed by this piece of software and hardware. And if you look at the two core organs in the body that we care about the most, one is the heart, the other is the brain. And so we know a lot about heart and we work out, we exercise to train the heart and make it stronger. But we don't do much about brain. Many of us don't think about how am I thinking? I don't know how many of you have thought, how do I think? Have I ever thought about it? Mm -hmm. Have I paid attention to how am I attending? This is extremely important because what I attend becomes my reality. Mm -hmm. And that reality affects how am I processing information? Am I happy or not? How am I relating with others? Am I sleeping well? Is my immune system good? What kind of choices am I making? What decisions am I making? So this is core to who we are. And I think culture of health, if we do not address this aspect, I believe nothing else is going to work. If you want people to lose weight, tell them how their awareness operates, help them become better self-regulated by training their attention, give them a deeper perspective towards life, and then they will become more disciplined. 
all of this actually enhances your willpower. So it enhances your attention, enhances your willpower, and that is the core energy that you need to institute any change. It's interesting because it's such an important insight to think about how we think, but your approach isn't just about the anatomy or the neuroscience. It also incorporates psychology and philosophy and even spirituality. Why is that so important to have that sort of holistic view of this effort? Oh, because, you know, there's 7 billion or more people on this planet, and there's 7 billion minds and 7 billion brains, and all are different. And we want to have different entry points into this reflection of truth, if I may say. So we have entry point through neuroscience. So if you really want, if you are really focused on evidence and hardcore science, then we can sit together and talk about neuroscience, and that'll make sense to you, and that that makes sense to my patients and students. If, if you have a faith-based practice, then, of course, spirituality or religion, we are happy to talk with that domain, and so philosophy and psychology. So those are the four core disciplines, but I have looked at decision-making literature, I have looked at behavioral economics literature, uh, anthropology literature, of course, the evidence-based medicine, marketing literature. So we pretty much, anything goes, whatever makes sense to help people. So you've integrated a lot of approaches are any of the pieces more important than the others? I never thought about that before. Are is it spirituality pieces? is the ultimate, or is it science is the ultimate, or is it, what uh, is it? Personally, to me, perhaps, it depends on how you define it. So I think science and spirituality together are both equally important. I believe uh, science is basically a systematic study of spirituality. Mm -hmm. Science doesn't know that. Science is seeking the truth, and spirituality is seeking the truth. Mm -hmm. So they are both sort of both eventually converge. And it is the integration of science and spirituality which is where the future is. Fascinating. The beauty is this has never ever happened before that science has taken a serious look at spirituality. Science has tested spirituality with its most cutting-edge tools. And guess what? Spirituality is treating the world around you in a sacred way. It is wishing others well. That's the core of spirituality, which is love or wisdom, however you define it. So defined that way, spirituality is testing out very well. Can you give us some examples of where science is testing spirituality? Absolutely. So there's a large body of research, for example, that have tested the value of forgiveness and the effect of forgiveness on anger, on blood pressure, on relationships, on your immunity. And every single study I have reviewed, I must have reviewed over five to 10,000. I didn't count a lot of studies. Every single study points in the same direction. So forgiveness has been tested. Compassion has been tested. And enhancing immunity is a big deal. 10,000 years ago, we didn't have antibiotics. So if you have a cut, your immune system can help you. So what enhances immunity? Compassion, forgiveness, gratitude, presence. What worsens your immunity? Anger, hatred, jealousy. A large body of research that has tested meditation as an intervention. So we talk about immune response to skin rash, to blood pressure, to recurrent heart attack, to potentially recurrence of cancer, self-regulation, relationships, sleep. All those have been 
tested and found to be uh, beneficial. Not everything has been tested in rigorous 10,000 people randomized controlled trial. And the interesting part, Mike, is that many of these studies have very large effect size. So you don't need 5,000 people to get a significant p-value. So that shows how much we can achieve with this little... And sort none of these any fruit kind of... Exactly. Right? Yeah. It, it's hugely... It's, it's fruit that is ready to pick. <laughs> you know, not even low-hanging. Right. So it's, it's the fruit that is wanting to be eaten, right. you know. <laughs> On the other hand, it seems really important, but it makes you wonder, is it really important to link these things to something we can measure and then say, ah, it does matter, like cortisol levels or something? Or do these things like compassion and kindness have a value in and of themselves, but suddenly they take on, oh, they're really important because they actually tangibly, physically impact our bodies. Yeah, I think until we all get enlightened fully, I think it's good to link the two together. Mm -hmm. What is in it for me? I mean, we have finite time, we are busy. So, and if you want this to stand the test of time, because there's going to be these waves of cynicism that come. One wave, the next wave. How do you answer somebody 100 years from now? Do you want to go back to the drawing board, develop programs again? Eventually, somebody will have to do these studies. Right. And I'm, I'm so grateful to so many scientists globally who are, who are doing, who have committed their careers to it. So I think we absolutely need to direct our lives, how we think, using the cutting-edge scientific, the direction that science gives to us. We're talking with Dr. Amit Sood. He studies how mindfulness can help us manage even the most damaging stress in our lives. If you'd like to give it a try, stay tuned. At the end of this episode, Dr. Sood will walk you through one of the mindfulness exercises he has found to help people put mind over matter. Whether it works for you or not, share your experiences with mindfulness at rwjf.org podcast or tweeting with the hashtag rwjfpodcast. Now let's get back to Mike and Amit. Let's go back to this point about reaching lots of people. We have a number of significant problems with vulnerable patients, vulnerable people, people who are, have all kinds of, for whatever reason, so-called toxic stress in their lives and have difficulty managing that and adapting to that. And it seems so overwhelming at times that it just doesn't, like, where would we start? These things sound terrific, but how would we reach entire communities like that? How is that possible? So I've developed this whole SMART program, and we have successfully delivered that model in a couple of communities already. And, and so my dream is that we're able to reach the globe eventually with something like this. I think the key is to train people who are respected in their communities, train people in this aspect of science, and help them deliver it within their community. Because we can't go, you, you need, for you to absorb something and open your heart to receive something, you need to have trust. Trust is very precious. It takes time to build. So what we are doing is we are connecting with different communities and training local people. People, they don't have to be psychologists or MDs or, you know, I've trained a real estate agent and I've trained a philanthropist. And But it helps to have some experience with coaching and, and such, wellness coaches. And so our goal is to set up these centers where local leaders in the community, where people who are passionate about making a change in their community connect. We have had Christian community, Jewish community, Muslim community, Hindu community, Buddhist community. All of them have said that, oh, this really aligns with my view of life. So there's some kernel of truth there that resonates with people. Fascinating. So Mayo is, in some respects, sort of the heart of excellence in Western medicine. 
And here you show up with this holistic approach to treating this kind of hard to define thing like stress and how our brains react to stress. Can you talk a little bit about your experience at Mayo and the journey that you've gone from when you first started to where you are now with these multiple programs and a mind-body initiative at Mayo and things like that? How do we get to so from A to B? Well, one thing I can promise you is that every single person I know at Mayo has a heart and really cares. And what they realized was, so there may have been programs that came before, but sometimes they may have been anchored a lot in rituals or individual biases. So we see that we want to offer health, but we also want to offer hope and healing. And so what is Mayo Clinic delivering? Mayo Clinic is delivering three things. Mayo Clinic is delivering knowledge, it is delivering technology, and it is delivering compassion. Every healthcare system has to deliver those three things. Knowledge is getting less and less expensive. Technology is again getting less and less expensive. Compassion is the precious commodity. And any institution that, at least healthcare institution, that loses compassion will lose a competitive edge. Because that's what patients come for. That's what they're hungry for. How do you find path towards that compassion? By training compassionate physicians and training compassionate nurses. There was this tremendous buy-in. This is the core program now that is taught to Mayo leadership, Mayo administrators, Mayo nurses, Mayo students across the enterprise. This is offering hope and healing. And through that hope and healing, it is also offering health. And these are all very closely connected to each other, as you know. So that is when Mayo said, yes, we are going to put our brand behind it. So this became a Mayo Clinic program. And now pretty much if you go to, I don't want to boast here, but we f- I feel loved at Mayo. I feel fully accepted and fully integrated uh, within Mayo. Wonderful. So ultimately to spread this and get dollars attached to it, you have to measure it in a hard-nosed kind of way. How do you measure something like compassion or kindness and the results that come from that? Yeah, so uh, so we have already done about a dozen clinical trials, Mike. If you go to PubMed and if you type my name and smart program, you'll find four or five clinical trials. And there's at least six or eight that we have not published, which are in different phases. And if we demonstrate significant effect, large effect. So at this point, I'm not spending a whole lot of time doing more research. My goal is to really, because we we would spend the next 20 years and and doing all kinds of research and taking away the complete cynicism from the the last quarter. There is so much low-hanging fruit. There's so many people who are hurting who could be helped like today. I personally believe If we stop science altogether right now, any further investigation into efficacy, etc., we have enough to help health and well-being of people globally in a significant way. But do you have enough to um, to change minds of the people who would help you sort of make that happen? I believe we do. Based on the uptake that I'm already seeing, we are overwhelmed with the requests to open regional uh, centers and I'm at least three to five years behind in terms of responding to people to enable them. So it's a beautiful problem to have. It's just bandwidth issues significantly. So speaking of beautiful problems, this is my last question. So we're all about embarking on this decades-long adventure of helping the nation build a culture of health and we need leaders like yourself and others across the country to help us do that. But let's just put you on the spot here a little bit and say wow, we really agree with you. This culture of stress problem is a big one for a culture of health. Please tell us how to address it. What would you do? What you're will I you're do? now the department of helping us address the culture of stress part of the culture so of health. That's a huge question. 
I never thought about it. So uh, the first element I would say is to educate people. Educate people about, make them aware of their current choices, make them aware of uh, how their brain operates, make them aware of their current challenges in a very validating way, not finger pointing way. Through education, you empower people and offer them hope and skills to go from this place to that place. Then inspire people. Inspire them to that they have the ability to reach a place of self-actualization. They can achieve their highest potential. I would say awareness, attention, willpower, and wisdom. Those are the key important things. See, the biggest challenge currently is not that people don't know the right thing to do. They don't have the willpower to effect the change, and they don't see hope. So I think imparting that is the key. And once you have enough people who are inspired by that, then you will start a movement. So you need very solid programming to offer to people. And then you connect with local leaders who are trusted partners of the communities. And you connect with those local leaders and enable them to disseminate. So that's how I think you can create a culture of health where health is not just about being physically healthy. Health is about wisdom. It's about love. It's about making a difference. And it's about creating a world which is, I think, our primary evolutionary responsibility, creating a world where the child born today is, we can say, is going to be happier and more hopeful and will live in a kinder world than the child born yesterday. And we keep getting better and better. Thank you so much for joining us. It's been delightful and enlightening and wonderful. Thank you, Amit, so much. Thank you for giving me the opportunity for making, for helping me make new friends and for the privilege of coming here. Thank you. The Pioneering Ideas podcast is one way to explore ideas for building a culture of health. I want to let you know about an exciting new way to learn more and get involved. The Robert Wood Johnson Foundation has put out an action framework that shows how sectors can come together to build a culture of health. As more sectors value health and see it as their business, we can see how to harness collective power across society to improve well-being. The framework is based on scientific, rigorous evidence. We need to collaborate to turn the research into action. To get involved, please visit cultureofhealth.org. So what do you think? Can we train our minds like we train our bodies for better health? Why don't you try it for yourself, as Dr. Sood leads us in a mindfulness exercise now. So, so this is a gratitude exercise, and this is how I try to wake up each morning. So if you're feeling, if, you, if you're, wherever you are, if you're safe, then please sit and close your eyes. And imagine you're waking up this morning. You notice the color of the floor where you woke up and the shape of the doorknob. Now think about the first person in your life you want to be grateful for. Think of the many ways this person has touched your life. Then send your silent gratitude to this person. Second person. And go back to the first memory of this person. Then send your silent gratitude. third person 
Look into the eyes of this person and notice the color of the eyes. Then send your silent gratitude. Fourth person. Listen in to the voice of this person. Then send your silent gratitude. Go back in time and look at yourself when you were eight year old. Notice your hairstyle at that time. And send silent gratitude to your eight year old self. Think about someone who has passed away who you loved. Give that person a virtual hug. Then send silent gratitude to that person. When you're ready, you can open your eyes. This is only one of the many kinds of mindfulness strategies that can help make us happier and more hopeful, conditions that should be part of our definition of good health. You can join the discussion about the ideas in today's episode and find related links all at rwjf.org podcast or on Twitter at hashtag rwjfpodcast. Robert Wood Johnson Foundation is interested in your cutting-edge ideas that can improve health and well-being. We welcome proposals from those who work in healthcare, and we're very interested in proposals from those outside the healthcare system. Learn more and submit proposals at rwjf.org/pioneeringideas. Be well, and maybe sometimes a little bit bored. The Foundation hosts podcasts to encourage a lively exchange of ideas related to our mission. The views expressed are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the Foundation's positions, strategies, or opinions.